Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When director John Hughes was making Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, the movie was way over budget and behind schedule. Paramount had agreed to make the film, but only if Hughes could guarantee it would be released in time for Thanksgiving 1987, which was becoming more and more of a time crunch. The problem was the two actors hired to play the main characters loved to ad-lib, adding extra shots to nearly every scene when they added their own lines. In the end, the Hughes movie was finished on time, and some of those ad-lib lines became comedy gold. Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. Because of scenes like that, Trains, Planes, and Automobiles is regarded as one of the greatest comedies of all time. And it also launched the career of actor John Candy as a leading man. But sadly, Candy's career was cut short seven years later in 1994. Candy was one of three great comic actors whose career and life ended prematurely in the 90s. First Candy, then Chris Farley, and finally Phil Hartman. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at the lives of three of the best comedians of our generation— This is Gone Too Soon, Candy, Farley, and Hartman. Growing up in Newmarket, Ontario, John Candy spent a lot of time on his own, reading comic books and watching horror movies. His father died of a heart attack when John was just five. So along with his older brother and mom, Candy moved into his grandparents' tiny bungalow. The six-foot-four, sandy-haired actor told the LA Times in 1991 he was a real heavy kid who didn't go out a lot, choosing to spend Saturday nights at home with his mom watching The Carol Burnett Show, the classic comedy sketch program which inspired a generation of young comic actors. But back then, John Candy wasn't yet interested in acting. He had his heart set on playing football, a sport that suited his larger build. In high school, however, Candy blew out his knee, ending his dreams of a football career. Following high school, he enrolled in a journalism program at Toronto Centennial College, and after taking some drama courses, found himself on stage in several school productions. So another change of plans, Candy dropped out of college and turned his attention to acting. He landed parts in underground theatre and small roles in Canadian film and TV, while working odd jobs like selling sporting goods and paper supplies. Then in 1971, he met another struggling Canadian actor who was sorting mail for Canada Post at the time. Dan Aykroyd had heard that an improv theatre in Chicago was the place to be, and he suggested they both audition for the Second City. They weren't picked for the improv ensemble in the Windy City, but Aykroyd and Candy landed spots in a newly created Toronto troupe in 1973. The pair were joined on stage at the Old Fire Hall in downtown Toronto by other up-and-coming comedians, including Joe Flaherty, Dave Thomas, and Eugene Levy, who would soon become one of Candy's best friends. While Dan Aykroyd moved on to a brand-new sketch TV show on NBC called Saturday Night Live, the rest of the popular Toronto Second City troupe helped launch an iconic Canadian TV show. 
Tired of ordinary television? Don't touch that dial. SCTV is now on the air. SCTV, short for Second City Television, began airing in 1976 on Global TV. The show essentially took viewers through the broadcast day of a fictional TV station in the town of Mellonville. John Candy was one of SCTV's standout stars, with characters like the chain-smoking egomaniac Johnny LaRue. You got a bad credit rating? Are you in between jobs? Is the place you're living in now a real sty? Hi, I'm Johnny LaRue, and I want to be your landlord. That's right, I'm the owner of LaRue Towers, and I want you as my tenant. Let's take a look inside, all right? There was also Josh Mengi, one half of the polka-playing Schmengi brothers. Good evening and welcome to another exciting half hour of the Happy Wanderers. We got a great show lined up for you this evening. SCTV ran for three seasons in Canada and was then picked up in the U.S. for another three, going off the air in July 1984. During those eight or so years, the show was a launching pad for so many comic actors. In addition to the ones I've already mentioned, there was also Martin Short, Catherine O'Hara, and Rick Moranis, who, along with Dave Thomas, turned a pair of toque-wearing Hoser brothers into Canadian icons. And while it never reached the status of Saturday Night Live, SCTV found a big following with younger viewers and was widely praised by critics. The Village Voice said, Individually, the Second City TV performers were merely brilliant and inspired. As a group, they were visionary. As a writer on the show, John Candy won two Emmys in 1982 and 1983. He had come a long way from the lonely kid in Newmarket, and it was just the beginning. His next goal was conquering Hollywood. In the years following SCTV, Candy appeared in movies like Splash, Summer Rental, and Spaceballs. Some were hits, others were duds, but Candy's skill portraying a lovable goofball always managed to shine through. Then, in 1987, he took on the role of a shower curtain ring salesman who won his way into the hearts of everyone, including an uptight ad executive played by Steve Martin. You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way! Oh, he's drunk! How would he know where we're going? Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was one of eight films by John Hughes that Candy would star in, and it was his first major hit, cementing his movie star status. In addition to the legendary ad-libbing Candy and Steve Martin did in the film, Candy also contributed to the script in other ways. In that scene when Candy is driving the wrong way on the highway, their car ends up squished between two trucks, sparks flying all around them. And Martin's character looks over at Candy's character, who has become the devil. The devil suit was Candy's idea, and is definitely the icing on the cake of one of the best scenes in the movie. By the time Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was released, Candy was already married to an artist named Rosemary, who he met on a blind date. The couple had two children. Jennifer was born in 1980, and Christopher was born in 1984. And the family split their time between Toronto and Los Angeles. Candy had never been an out-of-control partier like some of his peers from that era. But in his early days of acting, he liked to drink, and he said he was known to dabble with cocaine. When fellow comedian John Belushi died of a drug overdose in 1982, things changed for Candy. He cleaned up his act, settling into his role as a family man. 
preferring to spend time on their farm in Queensville, Ontario, with a brood of animals that included four Clydesdale horses named Peaches and Cream, Uncle Buck, and Harry Crumb. But Candy still had his demons. He was a heavy smoker for much of his life, and he struggled with his weight, putting his health at risk, which was something that constantly worried him since his father died of a heart attack at the age of 35. Two years after the success of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, John Candy starred in another John Hughes movie that would become a cult classic. As Uncle Buck, Candy played a big-hearted bachelor left in charge of his brother's kids. Where do you live? In the city. Do you have a house? Apartment. On a rent? Rent. What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office? I don't have one. How come? I don't need one. Where's your wife? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Do you have kids? No, I don't. How come? It's an even longer story. Are you my dad's brother? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? 38. I'm your dad's brother, all right. Amy Madigan, who portrayed Uncle Buck's girlfriend, Shanice, told Vanity Fair in 2016 that Candy was hilarious on set and incredibly generous and kind, treating everyone equally. That's something that Candy was known for. He loved to mingle with his co-workers from grips to carpenters and fellow actors, often giving the crew small gifts like candy and flowers. He wasn't totally acting when he played the roles that made him famous. John Candy was a lot like the warm, endearing characters he embodied. His kids told The Hollywood Reporter in 2016 that if you mix Uncle Buck with Del Griffith in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, that's John Candy. And while he was known for his comedy, Candy was interested in dramatic roles as well. In fact, he once said portraying the eccentric, nervous New Orleans lawyer Dean Andrews Jr. in the 1991 Oliver Stone film JFK was one of his favorite acting experiences. In the early 90s, John Candy's star shone so brightly that he was even featured in a Saturday morning cartoon. On Camp Candy, which ran for three seasons, the actor voiced an animated version of himself who runs a summer camp. Through it all, Candy never lost his love of football, and in particular, his hometown team, the Toronto Argonauts. In February 1991, he realized a dream becoming co-owner of the CFL club, along with hockey great Wayne Gretzky and Bruce McNall. With their star power, the Argos, who had existed for years in the shadow of the city's other pro teams, like the Maple Leafs, became the talk of Toronto. That year, the team outbid the NFL to snag hot draft pick Rocket Ishmael. The wide receiver signed a record four-year deal worth $18 million and ignited even more excitement for the Argos. Like most things, John Candy poured his heart and soul into the CFL franchise and the league as a whole. He flew to each CFL city to rally fans, some days starting as early as 4.30 a.m. so he could hit radio stations and push ticket sales. Game day would be punctuated with rousing rock and roll shows studded with Candy's famous friends. And the stunts worked. Once empty seats began to fill, and the Argos didn't lose a single home game that year, culminating with a dramatic win over the Calgary Stampeders at the 79th Grey Cup. Running back Michael Pinball Clemens remembers the championship game in Winnipeg as one of the coldest ever. Temperatures dropped to minus 20. But Clemens says Candy didn't watch from the press box. He stood on the sidelines in a leather coat, cheering on his favorite team. That era is still considered as the glory days for the Toronto Argonauts. But unfortunately, it didn't last long. 
The team was purchased by the Labatt Brewing Company in 1994 after Bruce McNall went to jail for fraud, which is another story for another time. Through it all, John Candy was still acting, turning out more hits, like the 1993 Disney movie Cool Runnings about the Jamaican bobsled team. Excuse me, are you Mr. Irving Blitzer? Well, that depends on who's asking. My name is Doris Bannock. This is my teammate, Sanka Coffee. Greetings, sled god. We were just wondering if you'd be interested in coaching the first Jamaican bobsled team. Mm-hmm. Then in 1994, Candy began shooting a movie that he wasn't super thrilled to be a part of. When he read the script for Wagons East, he didn't like it, but he was under contract with Karolko Pictures after another film he was scheduled to star in with Sylvester Stallone was cancelled. So Candy left his wife and kids, who were now 14 and 8, and traveled to a remote area near Durango, Mexico, to begin shooting Wagons East with co-star Richard Lewis. In the Western parody, Candy plays a drunken wagon master who takes a group of misfit settlers in the opposite direction of everyone else. After a long day of shooting on March 3, 1994, Candy had dinner, called his kids to say goodnight, then he went to sleep in his trailer. Sometime in the middle of the night, Candy suffered a massive heart attack. He was found dead the next morning. John Candy was 43 years old. At Candy's funeral a few days later, Dan Aykroyd delivered a five-minute eulogy for his friend at a church in Brentwood, California. The pews were filled with over 200 mourners, including Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Tom Hanks, and Wayne Gretzky. After the service, a smaller group followed the hearse to the Holy Cross Cemetery six miles away, where Candy was laid to rest. Wagons East was released six months later, in August 1994 completed with new technology, which was somewhat controversial at the time. Director Peter Markle turned to several special effects houses and a candy lookalike to place the actor in a handful of scenes in which he never appeared. Critics in 1994 warned that the technology could be used to create images that look real but in fact are fake, and no one would be able to tell. Just imagine what they would have said about AI chatbots or the new Indiana Jones movie. But Markle said they used a bare minimum of special effects to finish Wagons East. Most prominently, the same footage of Candy pouring whiskey was used twice with different backgrounds. Either way, Wagons East was a bomb. Film critic Roger Ebert said it's possible John Candy never appeared in a worse movie. Candy had filmed one other movie before his death. Canadian Bacon by Michael Moore was released after Wagons East in September 1995, and is also not considered to be one of Candy's finer films. In all, John Candy's career spanned 44 films. But if he were alive today, he would likely say his greatest achievement were his two children. Today, Jennifer is an actor and comedian, while Christopher is an actor and musician. They, along with their mom, have given their blessings to Colin Hanks and Ryan Reynolds, who announced in February 2023 that they're putting together a documentary on John Candy, which will include never-before-seen home videos, archives, and family interviews. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? 
did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Three years after Candy's death, the comedy world would be rocked by another tragic loss. Like John Candy before him, Chris Farley was a heavy kid who struggled to fit in. But instead of retreating into books and movies, Farley turned to humor. He figured out if he made fun of himself first, he could make the kids at his school in Madison, Wisconsin laugh. And he loved to make people laugh. But it wasn't until he saw John Belushi in National Lampoon's Animal House that he realized it could be a career. He'd already given up on the idea of becoming a pro football player, a sport he loved. At 5'9 and 230 pounds, Farley figured he was big, but probably not big enough. Instead, he went to Marquette University in Milwaukee to study theater and communications. After graduation, Farley moved to Chicago and set his sights on joining the Second City, just like John Candy. But Second City was a bit skeptical to bring him on board, because he was already developing a reputation as a big party guy. In 1989, director Del Close decided to give Farley a chance on the main stage with other regulars that included Bob Odenkirk and Tim Meadows. And that's where Farley began developing characters that would soon make him famous. All right, as your father told you, my name is Matt Foley, and I am a motivational speaker. <laughs> now, let's get better acquainted by it. Let me give you a little bit of a scenario of what my life is all about. First off, I am 35 years old. I am divorced, and I live in a van down by the river. <laughs> It wasn't long before Farley caught the eye of Saturday Night Live executive producer Lorne Michaels, who regularly visited the Second City to scout talent. For Farley, it was a dream come true. He was following in the steps of his idol, John Belushi. But there was a part of him that was a little frustrated. You see, at Second City, Farley became known for his slow, intelligent humor. But Michaels was more interested in his ability to make people laugh with physical comedy. Don't get me wrong, he was willing to do the belly flops and the shirtless dancing, but he also wanted more. He didn't want to be trapped in slapstick comedy forever. When Foley joined SNL in 1990, other new cast members that season included Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, Tim Meadows, and David Spade. They joined SNL legends Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, Dennis Miller, and Phil Hartman. It was a stellar cast, but Farley quickly became one of the show's biggest stars, with characters like Matt Foley and Cindy the Gap Girl. God, I love these fries. <laughs> if you love them so much, why don't you marry them? <laughs> Can I have some? Um, sure, Cindy, go ahead. Oh, God, these are good. Uh, Cindy, can you leave some for us? <laughs> I thought you were um, trying to lose weight. Lay off me, I'm starving! And who didn't love his talk show sketch? On The Chris Farley Show, the actor played a parody of himself as a nervous, bumbling talk show host who was usually too starstruck to make any sense. He interviewed Jeff Daniels, Martin Scorsese, and the ultimate get was Paul McCartney in February 1993. You, you, you remember when you were with the Beatles? Yeah, sure. 
That was awesome. But, of course, one of the skits he's most remembered for is the Chippendale Dancer audition, where he pairs up with the late, great Patrick Swayze. Both actors end up dancing shirtless in a bid to win the job. Farley's over-the-top, exaggerated desperation had the audience howling. But years later, Farley's friend and SNL writer Bob Odenkirk said he can barely watch the sketch. In his 2022 memoir, Odenkirk says it was a huge bummer that the Chippendale scene got so much attention because it confirmed Farley's worst instinct that getting laughed at was as good as getting a laugh. Odenkirk goes on to say, quote, I feel like I can see it on his face in the moment when he rips his shirt off. Shame and laughter are synthesized in the worst way. F that sketch. Chris Rock has also criticized the sketch, saying that it fed into Farley's belief that he wasn't attractive and that no one wanted to be around him. Others, however, have said the Chippendale skit was amazing because it showed how nimble and athletic Farley could be, highlighting his fantastic energy. In 1994, Chris Farley, along with co-star Adam Sandler, disappeared from the SNL cast. The show's ratings were at an all-time low, and Lorne Michaels was forced by the network to shake things up and bring in new talent, like Will Ferrell and Daryl Hammond. To make room, Farley and Sandler were out. For years, there's been some haze around the situation. Did they quit? Were they fired? Who knows? But either way, they both turned their focus to Hollywood. And it turns out Lorne Michaels wasn't done with Farley just yet. While he was still at SNL, Farley had shown promise when he played small roles in Wayne's World and Coneheads. Then Lorne Michaels got the idea to pair Farley with his emotional and physical opposite, David Spade, in the 1994 movie, Tommy Boy. But uh, before I decide to keep my business with your place, I'd have to come by and have a look at your new operation. Hey, I tell you what, You can take a good look at a butcher's ass by sticking your head up there, but wouldn't you rather take his word for it? Farley plays the underachiever son of an auto parts tycoon who dies unexpectedly. Together with David Spade's prickly, sarcastic accountant character, they try to save the family business. It wasn't critically acclaimed, but it did okay at the box office. And today, it's a cult classic, mostly because of Farley's endearing performance. The raucous, pure-hearted comedy classic cemented him as a movie star with serious commercial draw. Following the success of Tommy Boy, Farley and David Spade were cast together again in another buddy movie. Black Sheep was released in 1996. It didn't quite hit the same way as Tommy Boy, but it made money at the box office and in the years since has also become a bit of a cult classic. By 1997, when Farley's third movie, Beverly Hills Ninja, was released, he was earning $6 million a movie. But the actor's personal life was a mess. His life had become a cycle of going in and out of rehab and weight loss clinics to deal with addictions to alcohol, drugs, and food. Farley had the support of many friends and an adoring fan base, but it wasn't enough to tame his demons. In October 1997, following a stint in rehab, Farley returned to New York to host Saturday Night Live. And by all accounts, it was a total disaster. He was supposed to arrive with someone to watch over him, but he came alone and was already drinking. According to a 1998 Rolling Stone article, the entire week was a debaucherous affair. One report had Farley spending $10,000 on an escort who he took shopping at Gucci and Louis Vuitton. 
Farley appeared out of shape during certain sketches, gulping for air. But like usual, he put everything he had into his performance. After the SNL appearance, Farley went back to rehab. Then he went to see his family for Thanksgiving. Then in late November, he returned to his rented high-rise apartment on Chicago's Magnificent Mile. In the weeks that followed, Farley was seen several times in bars and restaurants around Chicago, intoxicated to the point of incoherence. A waitress who served Jack and Coke to Farley and his brother John at the Hunt Club remembers that he looked really bad. On Tuesday, December 16th, Farley reportedly paid an exotic dancer $300 to come to his 60th floor apartment to give him a lap dance. He rolled a joint, drank vodka and OJ, and according to the dancer, he seemed disoriented and unstable. Two days later, on December 18th, Farley's younger brother John went looking for the actor who hadn't been heard from. When John opened the front door of Farley's apartment, he was shocked to find him collapsed on the floor. John called 911, but it was too late. Chris Farley was dead. He was 33 years old. A toxicology report would reveal that Farley died from a combination of cocaine and morphine, like his idol John Belushi, who died at the same age from a similar overdose in 1982. Farley had lived life fast and dangerous, and he paid the ultimate price. Before his death, Farley had completed one other movie, Almost Heroes, with Matthew Perry, which received terrible reviews and has long since been forgotten. But Chris Farley definitely hasn't been forgotten, not by fans and certainly not by the people he worked with during his too short career. David Spade, who didn't attend Farley's funeral because it was too emotional and too hard to handle, says he thinks of his former co-star all the time. And Adam Sandler wrote a heartfelt tribute song about his friend. Then he car-wheeled round the room and slow dance with a cleaning lady. He was a one-man party. You know I'm talking about, I'm talking about my friend Chris Farley. The same year that Chris Farley left Saturday Night Live, another popular regular cast member departed the show as well. Phil Hartman had been on SNL for twice as long as Farley, eight years in total, joining the cast in 1986. Hartman's path to comedy and acting was not a typical one. He actually started out as a graphic designer in the 1970s and did pretty well, specializing in creating artwork for album covers. In fact, he designed over 40 albums for bands including Steely Dan and Crosby, Stills & Nash. But then something happened that made Hartman rethink his career path. In 1975, at the age of 27, Hartman attended a show by the legendary Los Angeles improv group, The Groundlings, which invited audience members up onto the stage. Hartman volunteered, and according to Tracy Newman, a founding member of the troupe, never has an audience member come up with that kind of excitement and energy. She says when Hartman showed up, it was like a hurricane hit the stage in a good way. The Groundlings thought Hartman was so good that they invited him to join the troupe while he was taking classes there. By the early 80s, he decided to take a turn away from what he called his very introverted lifestyle and pursue comedy full-time. While at the Groundlings, Hartman had met another comedian by the name of Paul Rubens, and together they began developing the character Pee Wee Herman. I wouldn't sell my bike for all the money in the world, not for a hundred billion million trillion dollars. Then you're crazy. 
I know you are, but what am I? Together, Hartman and Rubens, who played Pee-wee, developed a live stage show, which led to the 1985 movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure and the wacky kid show Pee-wee's Playhouse. Hartman co-wrote the movie script and played Captain Carl on the TV show, which ran for four years beginning in 1986. That year, Hartman also landed a role on Saturday Night Live, where he perfected dozens of celebrity impersonations, including Frank Sinatra, Jack Nicholson, and the fast food-loving U.S. President Bill Clinton. All right, boys. Let's stop in here for a second. I'm a little parched from the jog. Uh, Sir, we've only been jogging for three blocks. Besides, Mrs. Clinton asked us not to let you into any more fast food places. Well, I just want to mingle with the American people, talk with some real folks, maybe get a Diet Coke or something. Hartman was incredibly versatile. In addition to wicked impersonations, he developed memorable characters like the anal retentive chef Eugene and unfrozen caveman lawyer Keyrock. Sometimes when I get a message on my fax machine, I wonder, did little demons get inside and type it? I don't know. My primitive mind can't grasp these concepts. Born in Brantford, Ontario, but raised in Southern California, Hartman was handsome in a news anchor kind of way and was widely liked and admired by everyone he worked with. A consummate professional who gave every skit he acted in a thousand percent. For him, there were no throwaway roles. They called him the glue on SNL. No matter what sketch he was in, he never sucked and he never broke character. Beginning in 1991, Hartman also appeared on 49 episodes of The Simpsons, creating voices for four characters, including the cheesy B-movie actor Troy McClure. Oh, hi, I'm Troy McClure. You might remember me from such self-help videos as Smoke Yourself Thin and Get Confidence, Stupid. By all accounts, Hartman loved to work. A bit of a workaholic, in fact, which was often at odds with his personal life. His friends say he also fell in and out of love easily. Relationships burned hot at the beginning, but fizzled out as Hartman turned his attention back to work. In 1987, at the age of 40, he married his third wife, Bryn Omdahl, a former model, aspiring actor, and recovering addict. Bryn had moved from northern Minnesota to L.A. in the early 80s searching for success. She signed with a modeling agency and landed a few jobs, But along the way, she also developed a cocaine addiction. By the time Bryn met Phil Hartman on a blind date, she had gone to rehab and was clean. In 1988, a year after they were married, the couple had a baby boy named Sean. Their second child, a daughter named Bergen, was born four years later in 1992. On the surface, everything seemed great. But behind closed doors, it was a different story. As the Hartman family grew, so did Phil Hartman's work schedule. In addition to SNL and The Simpsons, he also did commercials for brands like Cheetos and McDonald's and became a regular on the late-night talk show circuit. Author Mike Thomas says Hartman wasn't home nearly as much as Bryn wanted him to be to take care of the kids and to be with her. Thomas, who wrote a biography about Hartman, believes the actor might have liked the idea of fatherhood a bit more than actually putting in the hard work that it requires. Because he was always working, Bryn resented him, and as the years went by, that resentment grew. Bryn's brother, Greg Omdahl, also confirmed that Bryn was jealous of her husband's celebrity status. The couple fought constantly, and Hartman handled it by withdrawing, which angered Bryn even more. 
He once told a friend, quote, I go into my cave and she throws grenades to get me out. Amidst the relationship troubles, Hartman left SNL and worked on developing his own variety show called The Phil Hartman Show. After that fell through, he signed on to play the imperious news anchor Bill McNeil in the NBC sitcom News Radio. Bill, what's wrong? Have you ever heard rap music? Does Sir Mix a lot like booty? <laughs> it's an outrage. Listen to this actual rap lyrics. Life ain't nothing but gritches and money. Only they don't say gritches. They say a certain word that rhymes with it that starts with a B. Gritches? <laughs> I thought you liked rap. I did, but that was before I knew it had words. Hartman starred alongside a great ensemble cast that included Dave Foley of Kids in the Hall fame, as well as Andy Dick, Stephen Root, and Maura Tierney. And here's a fact you might not remember. The show also starred a popular stand-up comic named Joe Rogan, who played the conspiracy theory-loving handyman Joe Gorelli. Despite the strong cast and some good writing, news radio struggled in the ratings, partly because of NBC's indecisiveness. In the five seasons it aired between 1995 and 99, it bounced around to 11 different time slots. And then in the final season, it was without one of its biggest stars. That's because two months before filming was to start on season five, Phil Hartman's marital troubles exploded with a shocking act of violence. In the early morning of May 28, 1998, Los Angeles police were called to the home of Phil and Bryn Hartman. There had been a report of gunfire inside the Encino, California, two-story house. Officers noticed the front door was ajar. They pushed it open and found nine-year-old Sean alone in a front room of the house. They took him outside and were going back in to retrieve six-year-old Bergen when they heard a single gunshot coming from the upstairs main bedroom. Both children were taken to safety, and when police finally entered the bedroom, they made a devastating discovery. Phil and Bryn Hartman were both dead, lying beside each other in bed. Phil was 49, and Bryn had just turned 40. Police later concluded that after Bryn had come home the night before drunk and high on cocaine, they argued, and when Hartman had enough, he went to bed. Sometime later, Bryn shot her husband in the head as he slept. Then when police arrived at around 6.20 in the morning to investigate, Bryn climbed in bed beside her husband and shot herself. Following their parents' deaths, Sean and Bergen moved to the Midwest where they were raised by their mom's sister. Bryn's brother sued Pfizer, saying that his sister was taking Zoloft before the murder-suicide and the antidepressant made her out of her mind. The case was settled out of court for $100,000. The murder-suicide rocked Hollywood. Phil Hartman's friends and fellow actors described him as the best of the best. And they were adamant that Bryn was also a wonderful person and mother despite the tragic end. In the final season of News Radio, the show dealt with Hartman's absence in the premiere episode. It begins with the crew returning from a memorial for Hartman's character, Bill McNeil, who died of a heart attack. The touching tribute episode included lots of laughs and lots of real tears from cast members who were still processing the unbelievable end to one of the great comedic talents of the 20th century. Thank you for listening to this look back at the loss of three comedy legends who left us in the 1990s way too early. 
But lucky for us, in their absence, each one has left us with a trove of material that will keep us laughing for decades to come. A special thanks to Kate Dietz, a listener who emailed me to suggest this topic. Great idea, Kate. It is much appreciated. If you have a topic to suggest, send me an email just like Kate at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. You can also reach out to me on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That90sPodcast. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 